Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in person payments. Then, Stripe Tap to Pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Dave Broadbeck has supported independent tech news directly for five years. Be like Dave. Become a DTNS member at patreon.com slash DTNS. This is the Daily Tech News for Wednesday, May 15th, 2019 in Los Angeles. I'm Tom Merritt. And from Studio Feline, I'm Sarah Lane. From Salt Lake City, Dave Broadbeck fan Scott Johnson. And uh, I'm the show's producer, Roger. Yes, indeed, folks. We have a load of tech news, including the Translatotron, a ban on facial recognition in a high-profile Western city. Rhymes with Bam Benzisgo. <laughs> Let's start with a few tech things you should know. Google announced new ad types coming to its mobile services. Search will have gallery ads that let advertisers display multiple images that users can swipe through. Ads will show up in the Google Discover feed, in the Google app, on Android homepages, and on YouTube, but not on Google.com for mobile. Interesting. Well, DJI launched its Osmo Action Ruggedized, Ruggedized, that's correct, compact camera, a competitor with the GoPro Hero. You may be familiar with that model. The Osmo Action can capture 12 megapixel photos, 4K and 4K HDR video, has electronic image stabilization, and is dustproof, shockproof, and up to five feet, uh, or excuse me, shockproof up to five feet, and waterproof down to 36 freaking feet. That's pretty good. It has a 2.25-inch touchscreen on the back and a 1.4-inch on the front. The Osmo Action costs $349 and is available right this second. Fans of Spectre and Meltdown, please welcome Zombie Load. That's right. Security researchers discovered four bugs in speculative execution on Intel chips, which they call Zombie Load. One of the researchers, Daniel Gruss, told TechCrunch it was easier to exploit than Spectre, but more difficult than Meltdown. Almost every computer running on Intel chips dating back to 2011 is affected, including virtual machines. It does not seem to affect AMD, though, or ARM. Intel has released microcode to patch the bugs. Apple, Microsoft, and Google have also released patches it has not been found in the wild yet but while most users are at extremely low risk from it as always we advise you to promptly update your software facebook announced that users who violate its most serious content policy against dangerous individuals and organizations will be suspended from using facebook live video for set periods of time starting with 30-day suspensions for the first offense 
Yes, one and done. Other restrictions against things like purchasing ads will also apply. Oh, let's talk about another vulnerability, Scott. Well, Microsoft has had their share of them over the years, but also has issued a software update to patch a crucial and critical remote code execution vulnerability in remote desktop services, a.k.a. RDS, in Windows XP, Windows 7, Windows Server 2003. Yes, people are still running that. Windows Server 2008 R2 and Windows Server 2008. Uh, Manual downloads of patches are available for XP and Server 2003, despite the fact that both operating systems are no longer being supported. In fact, 7 was just added to that list and will soon be not supported. Anyway, the vulnerability is a pre-authentication and requires no user interaction, similar to the WannaCry malware. Windows 8 and Windows 10 are not vulnerable in this case. Yeah, this is interesting uh, for multiple reasons. Uh, One, good on Microsoft for patching something even though they don't officially support it. There are a few contracts to provide security patches for Windows XP users out there, like specific contracts, which means it probably wasn't costly to create the patch since they would have to create it for those clients anyway. Uh, But they are making this available as a manual download to anybody who has Windows XP or Windows 7, despite the fact that they don't want you to continue to use them, which implies to me that they think this is a very serious vulnerability the way WannaCry was. Uh, you know, the the thing about these these kinds of malware is they're wormable. So you don't have to do anything for them to infect you and then move on and start infecting other machines on the network, uh, which is unfortunate because a lot of folks who use Windows XP, I'm not just talking about personal users out there, small businesses and, and places like that, may not bother to go download the manual update and patch their XP, in which case they'll probably get infected. Yeah, you know, you you say, Tom, good on Microsoft, and indeed that's the case, but it does point to, you know, Microsoft could easily say, well, just don't use this like crazy outdated version of Windows. You know, we've been telling you this for years, but the fact that they're like, well, enough people just don't listen and still are using that, or for whatever reason, just, you know, can't upgrade. Uh, this is serious enough that it, it needed to be addressed. Well, that's the part that grabbed me is that they there are obviously there are enough XP machines in the wild and server 2003 and whatever else that they have to they had to go back and sort of work outside their normal you know support system for operating yeah. systems. They no longer it's less than four percent of the market uh, still have still runs on XP. That's that just crazy to me. Yeah. But I guess it's. I mean, that's a big enough deal where I'm glad I'm both glad that they're doing it, but also it reminded me that we still have a whole lot of old operating systems out there that are they're vulnerable. So good. Yeah. On them. And so, you know, there, there are companies that have mindfully not upgraded from XP. They'll, they have internal software. They don't want to recode. Those people will probably go and download this update. They may even have a, a, a client contract with Microsoft because of it, but it's the, you know, odd XP user out there who's just dusting off his old Dell or maybe a small business that just doesn't want to pay to upgrade. That's the ones you got to worry about. Google has released an app called Rivet, developed by its experimental workshop, Area 120. Rivet contains more than 2,000 free books for kids, along with an assistant that uses speech tech to help kids who get stuck on a word, who are, you know, trying to learn to read and, and maybe need a little bit more help. The app can read a word out when it's tapped or listen to the child's own read and then tell the child which words they said right, as well as proactively jump in when it can tell that a child might be having a hard time sounding something out. It also uses uh, includes definitions and translations in more than 25 languages, so this is going to apply to a lot of kids. Rivet is also available on the App Store and Google Play Store for free in 11 countries. 
Mm. When I first read this this morning, I was like, huh, okay, yeah. I mean, I remember when I was learning to read, you know, we had those sort of like, it was like little record player, uh, you know, like 45 records and books and it would ding when you're supposed to turn the page. So you kind of felt like you were reading before you were actually ready to read. And there was probably some reading retention that happened, but this is next level. Oh, yeah. Like I, I mean, my kids are all fine readers now and have been through the rigors of of their junior high, high school, and even in a couple of cases, college course uh, reading material, and they're just fine. But had this been available when they were little and they were just starting to get, uh, you know, reading skills, even as young as, I don't know, my daughter was reading at two and a half or three in a, in a really rudimentary way, my oldest, she would have benefited hugely from this. And so I hope it's uh, something parents get a hold of. And I hope teachers don't see it as like, you know, robots are taking my job. Because every time I see a story like this, I think, well, if we get really good at this, like really good at it, then who needs an English teacher? But we're not there yet. Everybody calm down about this fake emergency I just announced. (laughs) (laughs) You created the emergency. You now need to calm people down. It's sort of like how I feel about Google Translate. I use Google Translate somewhat often. It's not the same as a French tutor, but sure. it's definitely a supplemental thing that helps me. I can kind of like learn as yeah. I'm as I'm you know as I'm studying on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't mean to suggest that this would replace reading with your child, but this is trying to emulate some of the best parts of reading with your child. When you read with your child, you help them out when they get stuck. You can tell, like, oh, you're having trouble. You know, look, let me tell you what that word is, or they may point at a word and go, "What is that word?" and you say it. And this right. machine learning uh, can do some of those things, which, which doesn't mean you shouldn't still read with your child. But there are times when you don't. You just let your child read on their own. And when they make mistakes, they get no reinforcement on that. So this is supplemental to you reading with your child. When when they're reading on their own, they can get some feedback and, and you know, help speed them along. Uh, unlike Walt Disney's Lady and the Tramp Bozo-approved record reader that I had. <laughs> I here, had that one! I really had that one! has the little book inside and the 45 that goes ding. Well, and there's also, you know, there are lots of reasons that a child might be tripped up by reading. Dyslexia, you know, it's something that can can be overcome, but you oh, sure. have to identify that mm-hmm. beforehand. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's different than a kid just being like, eh, I'm just getting used to this whole reading thing and, and you know, kind of memorization of of what words are like. So um, if if the app can help identify things that need to be addressed sooner than later, that's really cool. Yeah. My sister, who's a she has a master's degree in psychology and she's super smart she always has been and i always noticed something she was young she would read out loud no matter what it was and you could hear her up the hall <laughs> all night just reading out loud and enunciating everything and i used to think that was crazy i now think it was really smart and now we have an app or a service or a technology that perhaps uh would even aid somebody like her who swears that she the reason she got anywhere was because she read out loud <laughs> so now kids can do it along with an app and it can tell you when you're wrong or you're right speed you along the way Uh, Speaking of Google Translate, there's a research project out of Google called Translatotron that not only translate what you speak, but delivers the translation as spoken word, as an audio file in your voice and cadence. It works by not doing the normal three-step process of, uh, you know, recognizing what you said, turning that into text, then translating the words in the text and trying to put it back together in syntax and the translation, and then doing text-to-speech to to read it back. No, 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 no. This just converts the spectrogram of your speech using a machine learning algorithm to be able to identify like, oh, that speech pattern usually means this phrase, so that 
It is turning your own speech into another language. The accuracy is not yet as good as the slower three-step process that I just talked about, but it's pretty good. In fact, uh, they put a couple of examples up on their blog post about this. So here is an example of an input in Spanish. Larry me preguntó cómo me sentía y creo que es cuando empecé a llorar. And here's what Translatotron spits back out. Larry asked you how I felt. And I think it's when I started to cry. Now, when we were listening to this in the pre-show, Scott pointed out like, eh, the second guy sounds like maybe uh, he could use to sober up a little bit. Uh, so the enunciation isn't exactly the same, but you can tell like, oh, no, that's that's that original guy's voice. And you can understand what he's saying. Yeah, it's really cool. I I uh, I would assume, well, in usual Google fashion, the name's terrible. Change the name. Translatotron. You don't think Translatotron is a like cool it, name? Actually, it's something, yeah. I don't know, some about it rubs me wrong, but maybe it'll sound It sounds better. like something in, in like 1962, you'd like. Yeah, I think Translatotron was thing. in Lady in the Trap later right. on. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, we've buried the lead this whole show. How Tom has that record handy is yet another magic trick by the master. <laughs> anyway, this is a really uh, neat thing. We've gotten pretty good at, uh, and also, by the way, the text of that translation I don't know if that was accurate or not, but the English translation sounded kind of nonsensical. So I don't know if that's... Okay, here's, here's the actual translation. Here, here's the Spanish again. Okay. Here's the reference translation. This is the actual translation. Larry asked me how I felt, and I think that is when I started to cry. Larry asked me how I felt, and I think it's when I started to cry. Interesting. Okay. I mean, neither of them really sound like the original to me, but I get what they're going for. And I think, I think that, yeah, sure. This is a first iteration of something where, um, and I have had conversations with somebody, you know, where we're both like using Google translate and then like robot voice, you know, <laughs> tell him what Sarah meant to say in the beginning, like, <laughs> you know, like that, that it, it's clunky. It kind of works, but it's definitely clunky. Um, this is, you know, once this becomes more seamless, this yeah. is absolutely cool. And we shouldn't lose sight of the fact this is a research project, right? They're showing like, yeah. look what we did, not here's a product ready for you to consume yet. So I, I'm pretty impressed at the ability for it to just look at a spectrogram and come up with something that translates that well, even if it does sound a little bit like it needs a cup of coffee. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you who else needs coffee. United States FCC Chairman Ajit Pai. Not really. He's probably fine. He <laughs> is proposing a clarification to FCC rules to make it clear that carriers can implement blocking of robocalls. Oh, everyone loves a good robocall. By default, all right, as long as they, uh, sorry, as long as they, uh, as long as a way is offered for consumers and customers to opt out of the blocking, the rules would not prevent carriers from charging for blocking services. A 2015 FCC order was unclear whether opt-in was required or not, uh, or not. so most carriers and uh, erred on the side of caution. Pi's proposal... Uh, and a proposed clarification would be up for vote on June 6th, so real soon. Pi hopes it would lead to further innovations, like, and this is a quote, blocking based on contact lists, which the new rules also made clear would be allowed. The rules go into effect if they pass on a vote, which will happen again on June 6th. Uh, I I just got one during the recording, by the way, um, a robocall, so it seems appropriate that it happened just now. You know, when I first read this this morning, because I get a lot of robocalls, I'm used to no longer answering my phone. If any phone number comes in that looks remotely like my own, because I know that that's what it is, uh, but they still get me every once in a while. And it, it has become a real epidemic. Uh, and I know I'm not alone in this, like robocall volume 
that I've gotten in the last two years is like, you know, four X what I used to get. But, and I, my carrier happens to be Verizon. If I'm going to be charged for blocking robocalls, that's pretty annoying. Yeah, I mean, this, it seems to be across purposes a little. Although Ajit Pai does go out of his way to say, we would hope that carriers would provide this for free because it would reduce costs on their network to block robocalls. Because oh, they well, don't have I'm to deal sure with, you would hope. You yes. know, well, yeah. but he makes a good point. Uh, whatever you think of him, he makes a good point here, which is it actually is cheaper to just block robocalls than deal with the fallout from robocalls, increased use of your network, for one thing, and all of the support calls you might get from people complaining about robocalls. Right, uh, yeah. That doesn't mean the carriers will do it, though. You're absolutely right. They may try to charge, in which case it's opt in if if you if they're charging you because you have to agree to the payment. Uh, if you don't pay, they're not going to block your calls for you anymore. So hopefully they they implement it for free. Although John Brodkin at Ars Technica was less hopeful about it than I am because he says they currently charge you for robocall blocking on carriers right now. Why would they stop? Why would right? They yeah, it's like, hey, do you want a better version of this carrier service? then pay us and we'll give you a better version of this carrier service. I also am jealous of anybody who's like, you know what? I got 20 people on my contact list where I don't know how, whatever the number is. I don't need anybody else. I'm just going to go ahead and block everybody that's not in my contacts. I wish I could do that. If yeah. I could do that, my life would be so much more simple, but you do get random calls from numbers that, sometimes are legitimate and i i wouldn't feel comfortable doing that personally well, by, by default oh go ahead, go ahead. Well, and there's also third-party software that can do that for you right now you don't have to wait for the carriers to provide. sure and right. by default ios lets me make a contact list or um uh, my favorites list rather so the favorites column they'll always supersede the sleep function where i'm saying do not disturb the little moon um so they'll come through whether i got the moon on or not that's maybe a way to do it. Put all the names you want on there that you want to get and then just put your phone on moon for the rest of the time and nobody else can get in. That might work. Yeah, I like it better at the operating system level myself. Oh, I would too. Yeah. Well, maybe you'll like this, gentlemen. The city of San Francisco's Board of Supervisors voted 8-1 to one to prohibit city personnel from purchasing and using facial recognition technology. The ordinance additionally requires city departments to submit surveillance technology policies for public vetting. The ordinance will need to pass a second vote by the same board next week to become final. But it appears to be on its way. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason if it was eight to one, it's, it's not going to suddenly flip. Right, yeah. Like five, right. five board supervisors are not going to flip by next week. So it's just, you know, the way San Francisco runs its stuff. It's not actually an inactive or it's not actually an active ordinance today, but it will be, sounds like. Uh, and I, yeah, I have mixed feelings about it. I, I, there's, there's two things going on here. One, San Francisco is a famously liberal city, uh, and so it is very concerned about the rights uh, of its citizens, especially minorities. And there's a lot of legitimate concern about facial recognition providing false positives. And when it provides false positives, it ends up harassing minority residents out of proportion, uh, which is not good. So, so there's that concern. There's also the tech backlash in San Francisco. There's, there's a lot of anger with the tech companies and the people who work at the tech companies, things like, you know, protests and blocking buses. And that probably fed this a little bit too. Like, let's slap down these tech companies like Amazon and even Microsoft, who's called for regulation of this, but they still provide it, uh, who provide this facial recognition technology. So there's a couple of motivations behind this. I don't know that banning it outright gets us to the place we need with facial recognition, which is to make it free of bias or as free of bias as possible uh, and to see if it can be accurate enough to be helpful to law enforcement. Banning it outright 
won't allow us to experiment there. But the fact of the matter is, city of San Francisco is banning it. That doesn't mean all the cities in the world will ban it. Uh, the right. UK has been trialing it. So we'll get plenty of research on that eventually. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of examples of cities that are doing exactly the opposite, who are like, hey, you know, we got we to gotta make this technology better. Um, and we're on our way, but we're committed to doing that. San Francisco is just like, nope, doesn't work. Mm. Yeah, and they, they, like Tom says, there's so much backlash right now. I mean, I hear it from people who live there in the tech sector who are, are kind of annoyed at being the guinea pig every time some new tech comes along. And this is certainly not the first time anyone's being asked to try this technology, but to sort of blanket ban it in this way seems a little rushed. Like I, I think you maybe should just leave your options open for later when the tech improves or when there's reasons that it may be and true. They, and they might. Yeah, and they, they might they reverse course. Sure. There's always a chance they could. None of this is in stone, but um, I, I guess I'm just not surprised they're being, you know, they're wearing gloves on this one, and I, I think I get it. Well, uh, folks from Netflix are going to host a panel at the E3 conference. You know that E3 conference, Scott, the video yeah. about the video games. Yeah. It's coming sure. up in June. Heard of it? Yeah. yeah. Netflix panel is called "Bringing Your Favorite Shows to Life." developing Netflix originals into video games. And on Twitter, uh, Netflix did that thing where it very cutely asked E3 if it was busy in June and could it stop by and talk and hang out and uh, promoting this panel. Uh, and in the course of that conversation, mentioned the upcoming Stranger Things game, which looks like kind of an 8-bit take, which would be in character with Stranger Things. Now, Netflix has said in the past it's not getting into gaming. So... It's interesting. A lot of people are like, oh, you're not getting into gaming, but you're doing a panel at E3. Uh, there's lots of ways for companies to not get into gaming and still be involved in gaming. One is to contract people to make a Stranger Things game for you. And I imagine that will be the discussion on the panel is what are the best ways for us to turn Netflix properties into video games without becoming a video game company? Yeah, and they've already done like there's a Stranger Things game on Android and iOS that was pretty successful, I believe, came between seasons one and two did okay. Um, they're talking about more of that, obviously. A lot of people are going to jump to the conclusion, and I think it's a fair conclusion, when they when they get up there, it will be both about their properties and what could come from games based on them, but I think they may also talk a bit about what they did with Black Mirror uh, with the recent experiment of sort of choose-your-own-adventure style gaming. They did this with the, uh, the, the Minecraft game, or excuse me, the, yeah, the Minecraft game that's built in there. Now, a lot of these are very, um, at least right now, they're like Dragon's Lair, for those listening who know what I'm talking about, where it's kind of predetermined in a lot of ways, but you may have points at which you can make a choice. And so if you make a choice, a lot of times it's very binary. You get one or the other. Kind of like Telltale Games does, right? Yeah. More yeah, modern. The game, exactly. Um, that, that maybe is the most advanced version of what this is, but otherwise they've sort of dabbled in small ways. To do this at E3, I feel like they got to say more than just, hey, we're hoping to license our cool shows out. I think they're going to get up there and say, that, but also we're now going to go this much further in interactive storytelling. Mm. And it means multiple endings because we're going to come up with technologies that generate the results on the fly and give you, you know, maybe CGI that looks like it's a real production, but really you determined where it went or, or whatever. Um, it also, also this whole thing kind of um, points to the idea that E3 is changing. Uh, mm. Sony is not presenting this year. Um, EA is not there. A whole bunch of uh, big studios and publishers are not there. And as a result, you're seeing kind of odd stuff crop up. This, I would say, is one of those. So I'm interested in that fact alone, just to kind of see what E3 is from years from now, because it may be a very different kind of show and less about 
core gaming and more about integrated entertainment. Um, and Netflix is, you know, who who better position right now than them? Well, and it, it kind of, you know, I, I think like, okay, let's just say this whole thing becomes something more than a novelty. Like how will a television show or a movie um, that maybe, you know, that people involved in production say like, this could be a great game. Like how does that um, dictate the plot line and the story overall? Right. Well, that's the, that's the question. Like if they're just talking strict licensing, then they do it like everybody else does. If you're making a game, I was just recently replaying 2015's game based on Mad Max called Mad Max. Um, about the time Fury Road came out and, they when they do those sort of deals, uh, WB makes the deal and the publisher and the developers get together and they sit down with the creators of the content, and the IP holders, and they say, all right, well, we think this is overall the kind of game we want it to be. And here's mechanically what I think the players will be doing. And then you build the game out that way and you make changes as you go and then you go for your release. That's very possible. We could see things like Bird Box and I don't know what all. But I'm, well, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is going to be an interactive storytelling like uh, they did with Black Mirror. And they also did a Man vs. Wild type one recently as well. So they've been trying oh, right. different genres in this interactive right. storytelling. And the one thing Netflix has been saying is we want to do interactive storytelling. We don't want to get in video games. We want to do interactive storytelling. So I'll be very curious how this panel walks that line to say, well, our interactive storytelling will take you this far, and then maybe we'll hand you off to a game that a partner has developed that you can play on such and such platform. Yeah, and it could be both. There's no reason two things can't happen here. Um, I think the bigger issue is, will viewers, traditional viewers, like all this? Like, will they? do they want to have all this programmatic kind of algorithmic choice making in in movies do they want to have their movies and their video games in the same place i'm not so sure i don't know actually i'm not really compelled by it because again they're very binary choices there's only so many endings you can pre-film for uh how things end up in black mirror so it's it's not the most dynamic kind of quote-unquote gaming scenario but there's probably ground to do more and certainly they could do more programmatically they could do more with data flying back and forth between uh, a user player viewer and and netflix so i mean clearly they think they've got more here to show so it's going to be super interesting in june to hear what they actually have to say on stage well folks if you want to get all the tech headlines each day in about five minutes don't forget you can subscribe to at dailytechheadlines.com also, thanks to everybody who participates in our subreddit. You're the best. Submit stories and vote on them at dailytechnewsshow.reddit.com. If you hang out on Facebook, join our group. If you haven't already, facebook.com slash groups slash dailytechnewsshow. What's in the mailbag? Oh, Tom, I'm glad you asked. Uh, so on GDI yesterday, we uh, we we mentioned that my, my next Live With It segment, which is me living with new technology for three months, is going to be... Smart bulbs, and they came today in the mail. In fact, ooh, yeah, that was. Oh, fast. I know we got we got four Philips hues, the whites, the whites, and then we got. And Tom, remind me how I say Lifex. 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 We got two Lifexes. So we're we're gonna we're gonna test a couple models out, and I'm really excited about this because I don't have any smart bulbs. Never have. And now I will. Uh, and we got some really good feedback. I just want to read a couple. The first one comes from Todd. Todd says, I recommend getting the hue colored lights instead of the just white lights. A little too late for that, Todd. But Todd says, having the ability to set colors really expands the ability of smart lights. I have some 16 in my house, so I can speak with some authority. I use some of them as wake-up routines to mm. simulate a sunrise where they start as red and they're dim 
and they gradually change to bright and then slightly bluish white light. Now, That's kind of cool. Those whites yeah. can, you can dim and do different color temperatures, right. I think, with. They just can't turn red. It's, yeah, they're yeah, yeah, the yeah. LifeX ones, I believe, can. So you've got a couple options there. All right, cool. Uh, That Charlie dude also weighed in and said, I have three or four different brands of Wi-Fi bulbs in my house. My fave is the Cree bulb. They're cheap. They don't randomly disconnect. I've found that the GE bulbs do that. They have a good range and work with our Wink 2 hub. I heard they work directly with Echo as well, but I haven't tried that yet. Yeah. So we've got got a good little experiment going on here. As long as you're not involved in Novacore, Cree bulbs probably are fine. (laughs) Uh, that's a little Avengers <laughs> joke there. Nice. Well hey, done. Uh, we also got Mike, the police officer, writing in with a full description of his thoughts on security systems as a police officer. We'll have the full thing in the show notes if you want to read it. It's really good. But here's a summary. He says he's responded to thousands of residential alarms in his 10 plus years as a cop and can only remember one in all of those 10 years where the alarm indicated an actual break-in. He's like, they're almost always false alarms. He says, even if they're real, most burglars are gone before police response can happen anyway, especially since most burglars come in the late morning when people are at work and nobody sees they're around. He does say that alarms that provide video and audio are more helpful, writing, this newer wave of connected cameras essentially lets you be your own monitor and act more quickly when contacting law enforcement, no monitoring service as a middleman, and provide descriptions to responding officers. I own both a Ring doorbell and three Blink XT cameras. He also doesn't put much stock in Ring's social networking features. And he adds, peace of mind is worth whatever you're willing to pay for it. And I would never tell someone to not purchase whatever makes them feel safest. But I want to know the best burglar deterrent? Get a dog. I can't remember ever working a single residential burglary where the victim owned a dog. Plus, they're cute and love you and junk. Ah. Oh. You're speaking my language, sir. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Although I feel like Otis insight. would be like, hi, let's make dinner. <laughs> <laughs> what you got? Uh, yeah, shh, don't tell the burglars that. Uh, hi, yeah, th- Thank you, Mike, uh, for sharing your insights as a police officer. Really appreciate that. Absolutely. I I, I always sort of wondered, you know, I, I've never had an alarm system in my house. Well, I actually have, but I've never like paid for it to be engaged. And I always wondered like, okay, well, I would know after the fact that this happened, but I mean, are you going to catch somebody, you know, a perp in the middle of their crime? Unlikely, because. You- Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then Stripe tap to pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. 
Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. You know, they're not going to like sit down and watch some TV well, while they're at your house. Yeah, or they will end up making news on Reddit. Or that. Uh, well, thanks everybody who writes in every day. You're the best. And also thanks to Scott Johnson for being so wonderful. Scott, what's been going on the last week? Well, that was very nice of you to say. Well, there's a lot going on, including we talked about games coming up and we talked about E3. Well, if you want to get a great preview of what's coming at E3, make sure you check out the MVGB feed from Patrick Beja and myself. That's the monthly video game briefing at frogpants.com slash MVGB. It's part of the DTNS network and uh, really worth your time, especially if you're just a a casual tech-minded gamer who likes to follow the industry. We cover the big stuff on that show, and um, we got that big preview coming up. And, of course, Patrick and I are planning all kinds of E3 coverage as we do every year. So keep an eye on that. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter over there at Scott Johnson. Folks, if you are like, wait, live with it, GDI, what's all that? Well, Good Day Internet is a larger version of the show where we talk about a wider range of topics uh, that you can get through our Patreon and live with it. The recent special was about uh, Jabra Elite earbuds, and the future one will be about these light bulbs. And you can get that as well by becoming a member at patreon.com slash DTNS. Our email address is feedback at dailytechnewsshow.com. Write us. Tell us how you feel. We're also live Monday through Friday at 4.30 p.m. Eastern 2030 UTC. Find out more and tell a friend. DailyTechNewsShow.com slash live. Back tomorrow with Justin Robert Young. Talk to you then. This show is part of the Frog Pants Network. Get more at FrogPants.com. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.